0: Okay, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah 24. Seventy years. Throughout the first half of the book of Jeremiah, we have seen God warn and promise captivity. Most recently, we have begun to see the Lord through the prophet exhort the people to yield to the judgment of the Lord. Through Babylon. After years of calling the nation to repentance, and indeed there is still that glimmer of hope with the Lord, there did come a point that this offer was, uh, generally speaking, off the table. It was now time for the nation to submit herself to the judgment of the Lord, to submit herself to the yoke of Babylon. And over the next several weeks, we are going to see this theme that God is going to exhort the nation of of Israel. He's also going to exhort the nations that are around Israel to submit themselves to the yoke of Babylon. And at this point, the choice is not, will Babylon rule over you? Or won't Babylon rule over you? But as we saw even a little bit last week, will Babylon rule over you in general peace or will Babylon destroy the nation and take you all to captivity? And that's effectively where we find ourselves at this point. And what we are going to see today, because of the nation's uh, rebellion, because of their pride, we are going to see not only this call to submission, but in our time together, we're going to find insight into the length of time and the extent of judgment that God intends to levy upon the nation. So we pick up in Jeremiah chapter 24. We're going to get through chapter 24 and then a portion of 25 this evening. In verses one through three, the Bible says this, the Lord showed me and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of the Lord. After that, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then said the Lord unto me, what seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, The good figs, very good, and the evil figs, uh, evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten. They are so evil. So our account picks up in the time just after King Nebuchadnezzar carried Jeconiah captive along with the carpenters and the smiths. Now let's reorient our text in history a little bit. Um, We find ourselves, Jeconiah, being called Jehoiachin or Coniah. He had reigned for three months and was taken away in 597 BC. Now we find the word of the Lord coming in this time when Jeremiah is writing this we'll find in just a couple of weeks is a little bit more suspect but it is in the time that Jeconiah is taken away that the word of the Lord comes in this fashion. Remember that 597 BC was the second of three deportations that took place. The first deportation took place uh, in 605 BC and uh, that was during the reign of Jehoiakim And that was the time where Daniel and many of the princes were taken away. Then we have the second deportation, which took place in 597 BC at the same time that Jehoiachin or Jeconiah or Coniah was taken along with, as the Bible says here, the carpenters and the Smiths. And this is that deportation. As we've mentioned before, this is the deportation in which Ezekiel was taken to Babylon, So, Ezekiel has gone with the carpenters and the smiths. Ezekiel was one of the children of of the priests, and he was training for the priesthood at the time, and uh, he would have gone in this deportation as well. This places us in the same time period that we have been, generally speaking, since chapter 21. All of these prophecies taking place in the days, perhaps the months following Jehoiachin's captivity and the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. Um... And we, as I mentioned, we'll see that we'll see that continue here. Uh, the final eleven years of Israel's history prior to the the great deportation. Um, prior to the time when everyone is taken and the city is destroyed. So Jeremiah sees two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. And the Bible said one has ripe figs and the other had very rotten figs. The ripe figs being very ripe, the rotten figs being effectively inedible. And God asks Jeremiah what he sees. Jeremiah explains as much. He he says what he sees there. This vision uh, becomes the basis for a message which God has for the nation, which we read in verses four through seven. The Bible says, Then said the Lord unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? Uh, Excuse me, that's verse three. uh, You can jump ahead there to verse four. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans, for their good. For I will set mine eye upon them for good and I will bring them again to this land and I will build them and not pull them down and I will plant them and not pluck them up and I will give them an heart to know me that I am the Lord And they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. So God calls the nation to a perspective. He tells them that he has sent them away to Babylon for their good. Now it's no doubt judgment, right? It's no doubt judgment. But at this point, God says those that are willing to submit themselves to Babylon and to go away with them, I will do good unto them. I will do good unto their children. I will do good unto their posterity. Those that have been taken are the good figs in this analogy. They are the ripe figs. They're the ones that the Lord has acknowledged and sent away, he says, for their benefit. In Babylon, they will be protected and they will be brought back into the land. He promises to have his eye upon them. He promises to rebuild the nation. And he looks ahead into a restoration, but it's an interesting restoration, right? God looks ahead to a time, he says, where he'll give them a heart to know him and they will come after the Lord with their whole heart. That does not sound like the nation when they return 70 years from now. That sounds like the regathering at the end of the days of Israel. That sounds like the regathering in Revelation. That sounds like the regathering at the end times when God gives the whole nation a heart to know him and they will return to the Lord with their whole heart. After the Babylonian captivity, we really have no record of such a zeal. We see a zeal for the law, but certainly by the time that Jesus comes on the scene, we have no zeal for the Lord. They have not returned unto him with their whole heart. And so again, we would perhaps understand this to be a far-looking prophecy, a a return certainly at the end of those 70 years we'll talk about that in a little bit but the true return that god is being pro- that god is promising here is the return it would seem in the end of days now the point of this prophecy is not that these things will happen immediately we see that here but that those who are taken into Babylon will be the ones who are protected and those who are not taken into Babylon are the evil figs. We know, ju- we see just as much from verses 8 through 10 where the Bible says this, and as the evil figs which cannot be eaten They are so evil, surely thus saith the Lord. So will I give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land and them that dwell in the land of Egypt and I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places whither I shall drive them and I will send the sword, the famine and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. So God then turns his attention to those who have remained in the land and he calls them the evil figs, not intrinsically because the people are more evil than the people who were sent into captivity. That would be an incorrect reading of what's happening here. God is not assigning to these people intrinsic moral value based upon whether they were taken into captivity or not. Rather, God is saying that those who have been taken into captivity are the blessed ones. They are the ones who will be cared for. They are the ones who God will take and will do something with. Because they're in the land of captivity, because they will be cared for there, because then they will be brought back. But those who are not in captivity, they are still the ones in danger. They're the rotten ones. Not morally, not intrinsically. They are the ones who are in a place where they are in the land. They are, they, they are still in the place of rebellion. They are still in the place where God will cast them out. They're still in the place of famine. They're still in the place of pestilence. They're still in the place of war. They're still in the place of the sword. They're still in the place where, where, where the, those that are there are going to reap the whirlwind. Now there may be those. Who hearing this prophecy, having a heart of desire to, to follow the Lord, better people, good people, whatever we want to call them, will hear this and will submit themselves to Babylon and go into captivity. But certainly the idea cannot be said here that everyone who went into captivity are good figs because they're morally good people, that God removed the morally good so he can destroy the morally bad. No, God's calling out to the nation. He's, these these uh, captivities were captivities. Certainly there were some good people that went in those captivities. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, Ezekiel, right? But when Ezekiel gets to the river Kibar, among the inhabitants of that refugee camp, no one listens to him either. He spends years and years and years prophesying, and they mock him there too. So we're not saying that everyone that left is a good fig and that they're good morally, right? That's the idea here. It's just that they are the ones who will be blessed because they are out of harm's way. Whereas the ones that are still in the land are very much still in harm's way. Now, as we step into chapter 25, because we are already there, uh, we're going Back in time a little bit. We're going back in time, as I mentioned before, at least in the timing of the prophecy. We're going to find in a couple of weeks that we're going to see a prophecy that was given in the days of Jehoiakim, but is actually playing out in the days of Zedekiah. So there is a real question as we get into chapter 25, whether or not Jeremiah is actually going to be speaking these things in the days of Jehoiakim or whether or not he just sees them in the days of Jehoiakim and then announces them or pronounces them in the days of Zedekiah. That may not make a lot of sense this week, but as we go throughout the weeks, you'll see what I mean um, by that. So we step into chapter 25 and we, we come to a prophecy given soon after the um Uh, We we go from a prophecy given soon after the, the captivity of Jeconiah in those early days of Zedekiah to about seven years earlier to the reign of Jehoiakim. And this is what we read in this time. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The which Jeremiah the prophet spake unto all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even unto this day, that is the three-and-twentieth year, the word of the Lord hath come unto me, and I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye have not hearkened. And the Lord hath sent unto you all his servants the prophets, rising early and sending them, but ye have not hearkened, nor inclined your ear to hear. So Jeremiah tells them that from the fir- 13th year of Josiah until today, the 23rd year, the word has come unto me. Now this is not speaking of the 13th year of Josiah unto the 23rd year of Josiah, but rather the 13th year of Josiah plus 23 years. Josiah reigned for 31 years. So we have the 18 or 19 years of Josiah's reign. Plus another four to five years uh, following Josiah's reign, including the three months of Jehoahaz's reign. And then four years or so into Jehoiachin or Jehoiakim's reign. So Jeremiah says that from the beginning of that time when he began to speak till today, 23 years later, around the fourth year, of Jehoiakim. So we would understand here most likely that he is speaking during the reign of Jehoiakim or as I mentioned, at least seeing these things for the first time during the reign of Jehoiakim as he's mentioned here in the fourth year. Jeremiah says that from the beginning and for the, the, the last 23 years, he says, I have spoken to you the word of the Lord. For 23 years now, Jeremiah has been speaking to them the word of the Lord. And Jeremiah says, and you you haven't listened. But it hasn't just been me, Jeremiah says. Well, before me, God has sent you prophet after prophet after prophet. And God has risen early. The idea of God rising early is not that God sleeps, right? But it's a picture to connect to the fact that we do sleep. And if I have a busy day ahead of me and I've got a lot to get done, I might look at my wife and I might say, I'm going to get up early tomorrow because there's a lot to get done. And before the kids get up and before breakfast gets rolling, I've got some things that need to get done. So I'm going to get up early. I'm going to rise early. That's a sign of initiative, right? It's a sign of things to do. And it's a sign that I'm I'm purposed in getting things done because I'm going to rise up early to get things done. And that's the metaphor here. That's the idea. God is using this idiom that he rose early and sent his prophets. He took initiative. He reached out to them. He didn't wait for them to come to him. He has been reaching out to them. Through prophet, after prophet, after prophet. Proactively seeking to call the people of the nation back to him. And God says, well before Jeremiah's 23 years of ministry, you have not listened to me. You have not listened. Verses 5 through 7. They said, Turn ye again now, one, from his evil way, and from the evil of your doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord hath given unto you and to your fathers forever and ever. And go not after other gods to serve them, and to worship them. And provoke me not to anger with the works of your hands, and I will do you no hurt. Yet ye have not hearkened unto me, saith the Lord, that ye might provoke me to anger. With the works of your hands to your own hurt. So the prophets called for men to turn, to turn and dwell in the land. Don't go after other gods. Don't serve them. Don't worship them. Don't provoke me to anger. And you will not incur judgment. But God says, You didn't listen. You won't listen. Instead, you chose to provoke me to anger. And you're doing this, he says, to your own hurt. Verses 8 through 10. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because ye have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about. Take note of that and will utterly destroy them and make them in astonishment and in hissing and perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the sound of millstones, and the light of the candle. So we find a familiar message once again here that God says that because they would not listen, he would bring Nebuchadnezzar from the north, he will destroy them, and then that that common idea there that there will be no longer the sound of happiness, no longer the sound of weddings, no longer the sound of of of, of milling, no longer an economy, because God has... He has brought judgment or will bring judgment upon upon them. Things get much more interesting though. So all of that we've seen before, right? We're familiar with that. Things get much more interesting in verses 11 and 12 though. The Bible says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon And that nation saith the Lord for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans and will make it perpetual desolations. Here we find for the very first time in Scripture a statement about the length and the extent of the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah is the only prophet to record this length as prophecy. Now Daniel speaks of it in Daniel chapter 9 The Bible says Daniel was reading Jeremiah and found in the book of Jeremiah that the captivity would be 70 years long. And that's when he realized, oh, the 70 years is up. And he started praying and confessing the sin of the nation before the Lord, literally fulfilling the prophecy so that the nation could come home. We find that in in Daniel. And we'll talk more about that when we get to Jeremiah 29. But Jeremiah was the guy. He was the prophet who foretold the length of the captivity of Israel, it being 70 years long. And then we have a very strange statement. Jeremiah says that when the 70 years are accomplished, the king of Babylon would be punished and the nation would be punished for their sin. That the land of the Chaldeans would become a a perpetual desolation. And there's a few confusing elements to this. First, by the time the 70 years of captivity are fulfilled, Daniel and the nation of Israel are no longer under Babylon, are they? Within that 70 years, Babylon is overthrown and Daniel is under the Medo Persian Empire. We know that because it's the Medo Persian Empire. It's the, that, that actually, the Darius that throws him into the lion's den is under the Medo Persian Empire when he's an older man, not when he's a younger man serving under the Babylonian Empire. So that's interesting. By the end of the 70 years, Babylonian, the, B- Babylon, the empire is already gone. Nebuchadnezzar is well dead. Babylon is the capital of a part of the Medo-Persian empire under Cyrus the Great. Now second, after the 70 years, Medo-Persia maintains dominance for hundreds years more. Babylon exists for a hundred years more. As a matter of fact, Babylon existed in history until the 7th century A.D., when a Muslim conquest of the region plunged the city into utter dec- decay and ruin, that's what the Muslims enjoyed doing and indeed still do when they conquer, is just utterly destroying everything. That's what ISIS did over with all of the, the things just a few years ago when they, when they took over Syria. They were destroying national landmarks, they were destroying um, you know, important history, they, 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 just, they just tore it down. And that's what they did to Babylon in the seventh century AD. So from a strict timeline perspective, this prophecy is rather strange, isn't it? Well, we've already had a rather strange prophecy. We've already had a prophecy where God says, I will regather you, and when I regather you, I will turn your heart to me and your heart will be toward me. And we said, that sounds pretty prophetic. That sounds pretty revelation-y rather than pretty jeremiah E or uh, end of the 70th years E. right? Following me here with my, with my gibberish? Well, what if it's the same thing here? What if once again, within the principles of prophetic interpretation, God says, I will return you from Babylon and then I will punish Babylon and they will be in utter desolation. Where have we heard those words before? That sounds kind of revelation-y, doesn't it? Mystery Babylon. Kind of sounds like the prophecies we saw surrounding Babylon where Babylon will become an utter desolation and will be burned with fire and no one will ever build there again. Kind of sounds like that. And indeed, it's quite possible, once again, that that's what we're seeing here. We see on the one end of things, God promising that God will restore the nation, regather them and give them a heart that is his, even though that hasn't quite happened yet. And then within the same realm of prophecy, he sees God uh, say that Babylon will be utterly destroyed when when the captivity is brought back, even though that didn't happen for many hundreds of years. And and, and there's still the remnants of Babylon certainly hasn't been utterly destroyed. We know that that to be the case. And so there's, there's a possible correlation there with prophecy that I want to make you aware of. Now there's one more question that unfolds here that we can answer and we ought to answer, which is this. Why 70? Why 70 years? Well, because God says 70. Enough. Let's move on, Pastor. Not enough. Because there is a reason. And we, we, we can know this one. So we should know this one. Have you ever wondered that? I mean, obviously, seven is an important number in the scriptures, right? Seventy is a pretty important number. We have the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9 as it relates to Israel. Well, seven's all over the place in scripture. It's seven days of creation, seven day feasts, uh, and such. But why? Well, in this case, the Bible tells us. And I want to answer that for you today. And our journey to do so begins back in Leviticus 25 with a command as it relates to the Sabbath. And in Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 7, the Bible says this And the Lord spake unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When ye come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard, and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field, nor prune thy vineyard. That which groweth of its own accord of thy harvest thou shalt not reap, neither gather the grapes of the vine undressed, for it is a year of rest unto the land. And the Sabbath of the land shall be meat for you for thee and for thy servant and for thy maid and for thy thy hired servant and for thy stranger that sojourneth with thee and for thy cattle and for the beasts that are in thy land shall all the increase thereof be meat. So here we have a command that every seventh year there was to be a rest of the land. That land was to observe six years of farming. And then in the sixth year, God would abundantly bless them, give them twofold in the sixth year so that the seventh year would, would be able to be a year of rest. And that year was to be a year where the beasts and the people and the land were to have total rest. They were not to till the land. They were not to do anything. The land was to be entirely at rest, a Sabbath for the land, for the people, for the animals, for everything. And God promised he would double the crop in the 60 in order to compensate. Now the text would then go on to talk about the 50th year, which was the year of Jubilee, and the same thing would happen. The 49th year was the year of Sabbath, but on the 48th year, God says he would give them three times what was necessary so that the 49th and the 50th year could be years, the 49th year, the year of Sabbath, the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, and then it would restart again at the end of the 50 years. So God establishes this Sabbath principle, not just for the week, every week, one day in seven, but for the years, one year in seven. Now, knowing this, we move on to Leviticus 26, where we read this in verses 2 through 4. Ye shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary, I am the Lord. If ye walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season and the land shall yield her increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. So similar to the end of Deuteronomy, if you're familiar with the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 29, 30, 31, 32, um, God gives these promises and he says, if you obey me, I will bless you. And if you disobey me, I'll curse you. Right. If you obey me, I will bless you. And we see here the obedience. If you keep my sabbaths, if you do what is right, then I'll make the land to be prosperous. You'll have rain in due season. There won't be famine. There won't be um, pestilence. These sorts of things will not plague the land. And instead, I will bless you. Naturally, then there is a cursing that comes along with it. And we see this in Leviticus 26. I'm going to jump ahead to verse 14. And the Bible says this. But if you will not hearken unto me and will not do all these commandments, and if you shall despise my statutes or if your soul abhor my judgments, So that ye will not do all my commandments, but that ye break my covenant, I also will do this unto you. I will even appoint over you terror, consumption, and the burning ague that shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of the heart, and ye shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. So we have the converse promise, the, the negative promise, the cursing that if they disobey, God will be their enemies, just as with Deuteronomy. God promises continue. And just like with Deuteronomy, if you've ever read that passage in Deuteronomy, I mentioned it at the beginning of our Revelation series, God gets oddly specific. He says, then when you do this, this will happen to you, and then you'll be sent into captivity, and then you'll be brought back. And it's almost like God's promises of cursings give way to prophecy of cursings. The same thing happens here. We see this generalized cursing, right? If you do bad things, this is going to happen to you. But then God starts to get oddly specific as if the cursing gives way to prophecy of what will happen, not just promises of what could happen. And we continue. uh, I'll jump ahead again to Leviticus 26 verses 27 through 35 to show you this. The Bible says, and if you will not for all this, and so all these disobediences, right? If you will not for all this hearken unto me. But walk contrary unto me. Then will I walk contrary unto you also in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. And ye shall eat the flesh of your sons, and the flesh of your daughters shall ye eat. That happens at the siege of Jerusalem. They run out of food, so they start killing their kids. And I will destroy your high places, and cut down your images, and cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, And I will make your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries unto desolation and I will not smell the savor of your sweet odors and I will bring the land into desolation and your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it and I will scatter you among the heathen and will draw out a sword after you and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths as long as it lieth desolate and ye be in your enemies land even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it lieth desolate, it shall rest, because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when you dwelt upon it. Huh. So we find this oddly specific warning, where if the nation of Israel does not regard the Sabbath days of rest, which God commanded them in Leviticus 25, then God would take back that rest for the land by taking them out of the land, by destroying them, and then as long as they are out of the land, God says then the land can have its rest. Now this is directly stated in the law of God. It's explicitly promised. Now we connect all the dots by jumping ahead to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. This chapter was written after the captivity. It's actually written, it's in our Bibles before Jeremiah. So if we want to talk about Bible order, Jeremiah is not the first time we see 70 weeks. But chronologically speaking, 2 Chronicles 36 was written after the captivity of Judah began, which means it was written at least 18 years after Jeremiah gives this prophecy of the 70 years, right? So the chronicler writes this in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 18 through 21. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, And the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, and of of his princes, all these he, that would be Nebuchadnezzar, brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and break down the walls of Jerusalem, and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. This is in 587 BC, right? So this is is still after where, where Jeremiah is writing. Verse 20. And them that had escaped from the sword, carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the king of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, unto the land, until, excuse me, the land had enjoyed her Sabbath, for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years. So, the chronicler tells us that the 70 years which Jeremiah prophesies here in Jeremiah 25 and again in chapter 29 were in direct relation to God's promise in Leviticus 26, which said, If you don't keep my Sabbaths, then I'm going to take those Sabbaths back from you by taking you out of the land until the land has had her Sabbaths. To that end, we find that God gave the land 70 years of rest in recompense, thus, for 70 years of Sabbaths that the land did not enjoy throughout the course of Israel's history. Now, it's time to do a little math. A Sabbath year happens only one in every seven years, right? Which would mean that in order to, uh, to justify 70 years of rest, 70 times seven, means that for 490 years, Israel had not kept a Sabbath year of rest. Now, here's the thing about that. The captivity of 605 BC, from the captivity of 605, going back 490 years, takes us almost to the year, to the very beginning of the reign of Saul. Like right when the nation was unified under Saul. Which means that from the very day that the nation of Israel actually fully formed into a nation, not once, not through Josiah, not through Hezekiah, not through David, not through Solomon, not one time had the land observed a Sabbath for 490 years of Israel's history. And this is why the number was 70. The number was 70 to take back 70 Sabbath years that account for 490 years of negligence on the, the part of Israel as it related to this Sabbath year. Now, before we apply, I do want to briefly summarize the rest of this chapter we're just going to summarize it and and then we'll start up in chapter 26 next week. Nothing uh, of what we read here is something that we have not really seen already. He goes on in chapter twenty-five to speak not only to the destruction of Babylon, but to speak as well to the, to the destruction of all the nations of the world who have rebelled against God. Recall a few moments ago, we said that it would appear that the prophecy of Babylon goes well beyond just the captivity of of the seventy years. We said that the the promise of Israel's restoration goes well beyond just the seventy years, and it seems as though this would go well beyond as well. God mentions the people of Canaan. He mentions Edom. He mentions he mentions Moab, he mentions Ammon, he mentions Tyre, he mentions Sidon, and he says, all they that are in the uttermost parts of the earth will we'll bubble all of this back up um, heavily when we get to Jeremiah chapter 27, as God speaks to the nations there. To all of these lands, he promises that there's coming a day of judgment for their refusal to regard the Lord, and so we see that he's promised to judge Babylon, he promises to, re- to judge all the heathen nations, that they're not getting off the hook. Just because the focus is on Israel does not mean that the rest of these nations are off the hook. And the message is this. It's actually found in verse 29 of Jeremiah 25. For lo, I begin to bring evil on the city which is called by my name. And should ye be utterly unpunished, ye shall not be unpunished. For I will call a sword upon all the inhabitants of the earth, saith the Lord. Of hosts, The idea is this. If I am willing to destroy my own city, the city upon which I have placed my name, don't think I'm not willing to destroy you as well. This is a, a, the first of several calls in Jeremiah to the nations unto repentance. So God says he will judge all of the nations and the kings of the world will be judged and their power will be torn from them. So it is in these final verses, God makes it clear that his judgment and his justice will extend beyond Israel and will fall upon every nation that would rebel against him. So in verse 34, Jeremiah says, Howl ye shepherds and cry and wallow yourselves in the ashes. Remember that word shepherds we've connected here to the kings, to the kings of the nations. He says, Howl. You have nowhere to flee, he says in verse 35. The voice of the shepherds howling will be heard because their peace will be taken away because the Lord will destroy them. And so we have this, this introduction to the promises as it relates to the nations. And as I mentioned, we'll see that flesh out in the next couple of weeks. All of that in place. Let's apply this evening. Point number one, the Lord is long-suffering and full of mercy. One of the things that I love about the passages of Scripture where God uses time to express His thoughts and plans is that it gives man a tremendous perspective on life. Here we find ourselves in Jeremiah where over the course of a decade or two, God goes from repent and I will repent to you're all going to die or you're going to go into captivity. We might say, that's kind of harsh. It's kind of quick. We read about it and we say, wow, it's gone from repent and I will repent to you are all going to die or go into captivity. And then we read of God broadening his perspective. We read God saying, you know what? I've risen early and sent prophets. Jeremiah is not the first one to come unto you, Israel. And Jeremiah won't be the last. I've sent prophet after prophet after profit after profit and you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of Jesus' parable of the nobleman in his vineyard who sent his servants to the vineyard to collect and they beat them and they killed some and then finally he says they'll regard my son and he sends his son and they say ah the heir we kill him and we will be the heir and they kill the son prophet after prophet and God will continue to send prophet after prophet until he sends his very son and God says you simply haven't listened but we have the record we have the record of Samuel we have the record of Nathan and of Elijah and of Elisha and of Jonah and the list goes on and on and on of the prophets that God has sent rising early taking the initiative going out of his way to reach out to the nation And then we come to the captivity, where at the beginning, God, giving his law, he says, Obey my commandments, or you will be unhappy. Follow my Sabbaths, or I will make the land desolate. And the first Sabbath year comes, and they disobey. And the second comes, and they disobey. And there's no judgment. And the 21st comes, and they skip it, and there's no judgment. The 28th Sabbath comes. And they skip it, and there's no judgment. 245 years pass, no judgment. 280 years pass, no judgment. 350 years, no judgment. 420 years, no judgment. Not until 490 years later does this particular disobedience finally give way to God's judgment. And the generation in judgment says, well, God, why didn't you give us more time? Right? The generation going through the judgment says, God, why, why have you been show, so short with your judgment? Why is your anger so readily apparent? And it's just kind of silly, isn't it? Because for half a millennium, God has been sending to generation after generation after generation, seeking a generation that would obey Him. And it didn't happen. By the way, the same thing happened in the land of Canaan. In the days of the Exodus, have you ever come across someone who has said, why is God such a terrible, mean, evil, genocidal God because of what Israel did to the land of Canaan? Because God brought Israel out of the land of of Egypt, sent them into the land of promise, and they utterly destroyed everyone in the land of Canaan. Well, why didn't God give them time? Well, until you go back to Genesis chapter 15 where God is making his promises to Abraham and God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, but not yet because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it would not be for another 400 plus years before Canaan was utterly wiped out. Another nearly half a millennium between the time when God said you can have the land and the time when God gave it to them. And what was God waiting for? A time when His justice would finally overflow from His mercy. God is, is not an impetuous God. God is a long suffering God. And this one thing we know when judgment comes, judgment is not there without warning. And judgment has not come without a long string of abuses and a long string of God calling, for, mer- calling for, for repentance. Because God is, that, this is simply who God is. To that end, don't ever let anyone convince you or allow your heart to convince you that God is not a God of mercy because of these examples. Well, they just went right into the land and bowled it over after 450 years of mercy. Now, that judgment must come it is a fact. God is just. Judgment must come. That does not, however, mean that mercy was not extended. As a matter of fact, we know God well enough to know that mercy is first extended. Tonight's passage reveals this to us among many others. That judgment that must come is only because the mercy that has been extended by a God who rises up early a God who has gone so far in this age of mercy to allow his only begotten son to die on the cross that mercy only gives way to judgment when God the God who has extended that mercy has that hand thrown back in his face So the Lord is long-suffering. He is merciful. Here we see 500 years of mercy before it gave way. Let us never forget it. Second and final point. Be a good listener. It's kind of a natural overflow of what we just talked about. Natural overflow of what Jeremiah talked about this evening, what, what we just said about God rising up early and calling. Hearing is easy. Listening is hard. To my shame, there are far too many times in my marriage where my wife will come up to me and begin talking, to which I'll reply, what are we talking about again? And my wife will say, remember we had this conversation X number of days or weeks ago? And I'll say, yep, probably. (laughs) And I don't even remember having it. Or maybe every once in a while I'll say, oh yeah, that one. I remember that one now. I'm reminded once again, that hearing is easy, but listening is hard. But the man that is blessed before God is not the hearer, is it? We've been talking about this in Sunday school. The man that is blessed is the listener. By this we mean the doer. So James tells us, James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. But if any, for if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass; for he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This man shall be blessed in his deed. We are reminded that it is never enough just to know stuff. It is never enough just to know what God's word says. The nation of Israel knew what God's word says, but somehow they had justified knowing it being enough. But they weren't listening. They weren't listening. They weren't listening to what the prophet said. They weren't listening to what Nathan had to say. They weren't listening to what Samuel had to say. They weren't listening to what Elijah had to say. They weren't listening to what Elijah had, Elisha had to say. They weren't listening to Jonah. They weren't listening to Micaiah. They weren't listening to Micah. They weren't listening to Jeremiah. They weren't listening to Ezekiel. They didn't listen to Isaiah. They weren't listening. They heard, but they weren't listening. And and we all know that we can do this. Let us be careful that we don't hide behind what we know in order to justify what we have failed to do. Don't hide behind simply knowing stuff to justify why you haven't done stuff. Don't allow what you know to keep you from doing what you need to do. The man who is blessed before God is not the man who knows that God will provide. Not the man who knows about sin. Not the man who knows about the gospel. Not the man who knows about rewards in heaven. Not the man who knows to pray. Not the man who knows the Bible. The man that is blessed before God is the man who listens. The man who takes what he knows and makes it what he is. Who listens to what God has to say about sin, to to who listens to what God has to say about the consequences of sin, who listens to what God has to say about rewards in heaven, who listens to what God has to say about the gospel, who listens to what God has to say about the power and benefits of prayer, who listens to what the, what God has to say about the power of the word of God, In your life who listens to what the Word of God has to say about your parents about your authorities about your manner of living about the way that you would deport yourself about what you should think on and not think on what you should say and not say how you should act and not act the one who listens is the one who is blessed this is faith been talking about that in Sunday school right this is wisdom this is blessing I want to read to you a couple of verses from Psalm 119. First from Aleph, first verse in Aleph, verse one. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. And then from Beth, the first verse of that, the second stanza there in Beth, verse nine. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. The testimony of the word of God is that the doer is blessed. That's what these two verses are saying. The cleansing of the way comes to the one who takes heed to God's word. The blessings are upon the undefiled. Who are the undefiled? The ones who walk in the law of the Lord. And perhaps as I say this this evening, the spirit of God has placed upon your heart some element of your life where you have been a hearer but not a doer. You know the reproofs and instruction. You know that they are the way of life. You know what the Bible says, but it hasn't become what you are. Now we're all growing, right? None of us has arrived, nor will any of us arrive until the day that we step from this world to the next. But if there's something that you know, which is not something that you do, the question naturally is, why? Why? What is stopping you from taking the step of taking what you know and making it what you do? Of taking what you've heard and listening to what you've heard? Our memory verse for the month reminds us of just how silly the whole idea is. Matthew sixteen twenty six. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What does it profit us if we know the whole book we don't obey it? What does it profit us if the things of this world have overridden in our hearts the things that the Bible says to be true? What does it profit us if we go back to our Sunday school conversation if we know that the tongue is a fire in a world of iniquity, if we don't bridle it? What does it profit us if we know God will provide if we don't place ourselves in His care? What does it profit us if we know the power of prayer if we don't pray? What does it profit us to have the knowledge if it isn't what we do? And so we are exhorted this evening first to remind ourselves of the Lord's long suffering. But secondly, we're exhorted to be good listeners. If there's something that we're not doing, it's certainly because the Lord has not told us. Certainly not because God has not given us the user manual. Have you been listening to it? Are you obeying it? Let's close in prayer.